All right, let's um, uh, want to invite uh, Pastor Andrew Elder up uh, to the stage here. Uh, go ahead and give him a round of applause. I'll let you stand there. I have the honor of uh, introducing him to you this morning. He is our dear friend from Northern Ireland. Uh, as, as Tyson was talking about the potluck of the church, uh, part of our potluck just doesn't just feed us. It goes to feed other people from around the world. And so he is one of our partners that we get to, uh, church planners that we get to partner with, uh, not just financially, but relationally. And we, we actually even sent a team over there. Um, when was that, 2019? Yeah, 19, I think. Yeah, 2019, before the pandemic. And so we're we're looking to uh, to be able to possibly do that again in the future, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, so Pastor Andrew has a wife and two beautiful children uh, who he misses dearly and who yeah. he's actually on his way later this evening to go home and see. Mm -hmm. So uh, Pastor Andrew, we're going to turn it over to you. So thank you so much for being here this morning. Thanks, Sam. Oh, oh. <laughs> that was a little bit, oh, I'm very uh, loud. That was a little bit more romantic than I thought it was going to be, Tim. <laughs> There we go. You only said earlier, things break. Things break. Um, Grace Point, it's so good to be with you this morning, uh, 7,000 miles away from my home, um, and my two babies, and my beautiful wife. Um, and before I get into my sermon this morning, I just want to really uh, bring greetings from Belfast, from Northern Ireland, from Village, uh, to you guys. Um, you know, when, when Paul is writing to the Philippian church, he says that he, he is thankful uh, every time he remembers them because of their partnership in the gospel. And although we don't get to see you guys much, that's really what we feel. We feel that we have a partnership in the gospel. Um, and one thing that this really reminds me of, of being able to be here this morning and, and having these two churches so uh, distant uh, by geography working together for the advancement of the kingdom is there's a prophecy in, in Habakkuk chapter 2. You guys say Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Habakkuk? Does it, you understand what I mean when I say Habakkuk, right? Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. And this has been such a, uh, a real, uh, it's given me such a sense of confidence and comfort and hope, uh, planting the church through a pandemic and all that kind of stuff. And this is what it says. It says, uh, for, the, the no, for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's what we're doing. And as you partner with us in that, um, that's what's happening. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord is spreading across the world. And one day we know that Jesus will return and that mission will be complete. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So thank you so much. We love you. Uh, we pray for you often. Uh, we have a weekly prayer meeting. We get together. There's about 45 members in our church. We gather about uh, 70 to 80 on a Sunday. Um, when we gather to pray, we pray for you. We always pray for you guys. So thank you so much. We love you. Um, let me pray for us one more time, and, and then uh, we'll get into our passage this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you have spoken to us, and you are speaking to us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning to make this word come alive in our hearts. Speak to your children. We want to hear your voice. Jesus, we want to experience more of you this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Um, as Pastor Tim mentioned, I have two kids. I have a son and a daughter. And my son and I, my son is eight years old, um, we have a lot in common. Um, he looks a lot like I looked uh, when I was that age, kind of, you wouldn't believe it, but like a skinny kid with blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, a lot of those things have changed <laughs> since I was eight years old. And we both love Lego. We both love uh, video games. Um, we both love soccer, or as we call it, football. 
because you actually kick a ball. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that we have in common, one of the more unusual things that my son and I have in common is that we share the same birthday. He was born on my 30th birthday, um, which is really cool. And people always have that reaction. The reaction people always say is like, wow, that, what a coincidence. What are the chances? Which is actually kind of a stupid question. Because there are 365 days in the year, so the chances are one in 365. <laughs> but still, people think it's a coincidence. And coincidences are strange things, aren't they? Seemingly random events that, that, that we attach meaning to. Now, I'm a bit of a, a nerd when it comes to space. Um, I love uh, space documentaries. I, I love watching, you know, the SpaceX launches and NASA launches and all that kind of stuff. I find space and the universe totally fascinating. And what physicists tell us is that space is full of cosmic coincidences. Think about it. The universe supposedly came out of nowhere in the Big Bang. Supposedly, particles and molecules all just happen to, to align in the right way to form planets and stars and galaxies. And the Earth just happened to form at the right distance from the sun. Any closer, our atmosphere would burn off and we would die. Any further away, it would be too cold for life to survive. What are the chances? Of course, we knew that none of this happened by chance. But what are the chances of anything in life? Las Vegas is, you can probably get odds on anything in Las Vegas, I would imagine. Um, on any question, you say, what are the chances? You get some odds. But we do have what are the chances moments in life, don't we? Um, I had to rent a car um, when I was coming on this trip. But about a week before I left, I've been in the States for a little while now, and a week before I left, I realized that my license had expired. Actually, my wife told me six months ago that my license had expired, <laughs> but I just hadn't done anything about it. And so... I sent off to get it renewed, and I realized that uh, they told me it was going to take a couple of weeks at least for it to, to come back. There was no way that I was going to have a license to be able to rent a car when I got to the States. But the very next day, my license arrived in the mail. What are the chances? I actually said, what are the chances of this happening? And we love these what are the chances moments in life, don't we? What are the chances of this happening? What are the chances that, that a parking space opens up right in, front of the, right in front of the store we want to go into or we hit all the green lights on the way home? We love what are the chances moments, except when things don't go our way. Millions, think about this. Millions upon millions of cells in the human body, and they all divide and multiply exactly as they should, except for one that may do so in a different way, and it begins the start of a cancerous tumor. What are the chances? And to live in a world, in a universe, where everything is just happening by chance is a pretty hopeless way to live, right? If everything is just random, uh, maybe even especially the difficult things, the accidents and the tragedies, how could we ever have any hope? A global pandemic that closed down the world, killed hundreds of thousands, a war in Ukraine, markets in turbulence, all just happening by chance. Don't you think that that kind of world is very bleak? Can we really live life, or can we really leave life to chance? But church, this is not the world that we live in. We don't live in a random world at all. And this is one of the main points of the, the, the book of Esther. In Esther, we're meant to see that even when God isn't acknowledged or mentioned, that he is powerfully at work. 
Time is so ordered by Almighty God that everything happens precisely as he intends it to. And as we look at Esther chapter 6, here's what we see. And I want, I, want to, I want us to take this away, take this home with you today. God works through all things for the good of his people. God works through all things for the good of his people. That's kind of the spoiler. That's where we're heading today. And we see this played out in three ways. And the first one is the coincidences. And these coincidences show us that God is always at work. You see, in Esther chapter 6, there are three seemingly random events in the first four verses. I mean, so far in the story of Esther, uh, things haven't been going too well for poor old Mordecai, right? His plans to get Esther on the inside of the king's palace haven't really seemed to have borne much fruit. He has saved the king's life, but the king hasn't even noticed. The king doesn't seem to care. There's a plot to kill all the Jews, kill all his people, which seems to be unstoppable. And Haman, his arch nemesis, who just so happens to be the second most powerful man in the empire, is plotting to have him murdered. What are the chances of all of this happening to one guy? No wonder he's dressed in rags and, and covered himself in ashes. But here at the start of Esther chapter 6, the director of the movie, as it were, cuts to the middle of the night in the king's bedroom, and the king can't sleep. He's tossing and turning. He's just awake. He's lying, staring at the ceiling. This is the first random event. Now, it might seem like an insignificant detail, but it's anything but insignificant. We don't know why the king can't sleep. He, uh, he was at a feast the night before, so maybe he had indigestion. I don't know, maybe he ate too much or had too much red wine. Who knows? Maybe he had a long nap during the day. Like, imagine kings take naps. We don't know why he can't sleep, but this detail is included to pull our focus away from human action. I mean, the king wanted to sleep, but it was completely out of his control. Now, my wife says that I can fall asleep in about 30 seconds. Like, I'm one of those people, that as soon as my head hits the pillow, like, I'm out. Um, we have this saying in Ireland that um, I could sleep in a clothesline. Have you ever heard that? You sleep in a clothesline? That's me. I could fall asleep on a clothesline. So, I know that if I can't sleep, there's usually something going on. Uh, it's usually something I'm thinking about. Usually something that's eating me up. Um, and it shouldn't be... It shouldn't be lost on us that the most powerful man in the entire world at this time is not in control of what's about to happen. He can't control that he can't fall asleep. The author wants us to notice that there is an unseen power at work. In fact, I love this. In, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says the Lord took sleep from the king that night. The Lord took sleep from the king that night. It might seem like a random occurrence, but it's anything but random. Now, when I can't sleep, I have a little ritual. I usually go downstairs and uh, make a cup of hot water and watch the news for a while, right? That makes me, you know, kind of resets my brain and I can go back, go, go back to bed and fall asleep. But the king has another idea. He calls for a bedtime story, a little old for a bedtime story, but you're a king, you can do whatever you want. Um, and he has such an ego that he thinks, well, let's have the chronic. I, I, want, I want to hear about all the great things I've done in my life. Bring the history books in, man. Let me hear about this stuff. This, uh, and it just so happens that his servants in this moment when he can't sleep just so happened to read about the time that Mordecai had saved his life. 
This is the second random event. What are the chances? Out of the thousands of records they could have read that night, out of the countless events of the king's life and and the history of the Persian Empire, they just so happen to read this event. What are the chances? But the chances don't stop there. You see, when the king hears how Mordecai has saved his life, he realizes that he hasn't honored him. Nothing has been done to honor him. Now, this is a mistake because in this empire, honor is a huge deal. Not necessarily to give the person honor, but to protect the king. The people need to see that when you do something good for the king, you will be rewarded. Because that way, there's an enticement, there's incentive to to act well on behalf of the king. And so Mordecai, and when he learns that Mordecai hasn't been rewarded, he knows he has to act. And just at the very moment that the king decides to act on this, his second in command, Haman the man who hates Mordecai, the enemy of God's people, has just entered the king's court at that precise moment. This is our third coincidence. Like, think about it. What are the chances all this happening at exactly the right time in exactly the right order? What are the chances? Church, I'm here to tell you the chances of those things happening in exactly that order, exactly the right time, are 100% because God is in control. God is in control, and His will will be accomplished. Nowhere on the strip downtown can you find odds so certain that God's will being accomplished exactly according to His plans. There are no chances with God. Make no mistake about it. There are no chances with God. He is never not in control. The odds were 100% that the king was going to hear what the king of kings wanted him to hear that night. Uh, My wife and I have been watching uh, the new Amazon Rings of Power series. Anyone been watching that? Now, We've a few. I've been gone, so we. She promised she wasn't going to watch it while I was gone, so no spoilers. Um, but but it's made us kind of go back and, and watch the original Lord of the Rings movies. Um, and there's this scene in the first one where Gandalf turns up in the Shire, and Frodo says to him, "Oh, you're late." And Gandalf says, "A wizard. I'm not going to do the accent. A wizard is never late. He arrives. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And so it is with the will of God." His plans are unfolding for the world, for your church, for your life, exactly as He means to. The blessing that you've been waiting on isn't late in coming. It will arrive exactly when He means it to. The suffering you're going through isn't late in leaving you. It will leave precisely when He means it to. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that God is in control of everything. There's not one sphere of reality, not one realm of existence over which he does not have complete and utter sovereignty. Think about it. From the largest galaxy on the edge of the universe to the the, the smallest cell in your body, God is in control. From the the brightest star in the sky to the smallest uh, grain of sand in the desert, God has complete sovereignty. R.C. Sproul, who was a a, a pastor and a theologian, he's, he's in glory now, and, and he put it this way. He says, if God is the creator of the entire universe, then it must follow that he is the Lord of the whole universe. No part of the world is outside of his lordship, and that means that no part of my life must be outside of his lordship. Now, here's the thing. We don't like this, do we? 
We don't like not being in control of our own lives. We want to be in control of our, our, our destiny. We want to be in control of things that happen to us. But what's the alternative? What's the alternative of God being in control? Because if he's not in control, who is? Like I know that I'm not in control. You know that you're not in control. You've all experienced things in your lives that have told you that you are not in control of your own life. Five years ago, uh, my sister, who was two years older than me, went to the doctor after feeling unwell for a couple of weeks. And she was pretty quickly diagnosed with leukemia. And, fi and five months later, she died. Um, five years ago to the day last Wednesday, actually. Now, tell me, is God not in control just because a young woman gets cancer? I've had people say to me, I, I, don't, I don't like the idea of a God who's in control of cancer. Well, what's more terrifying, cancer without God being in control or cancer with God in control? What's more, what's more treacherous and terrifying? A world with disease and tyrants and wars and pandemics and fluctuating markets that's outside of God's control? Or a world with all of those things Seemingly happening by chance, but under the sovereign control of an omnipotent God. Which world do you want to live in? I mean, church, I want to encourage you today. I don't, I don't know. I, I know a handful of you, and I want to get to know more of you. But I don't know all the things that you're going through. I don't know uh, how dark the path you're walking right now is. But please be encouraged. God loves you, and he is in control. Even if you're struggling to see him, even if it's been a while since you've heard him, even if you don't believe in him, he is there and he is working. There are no chances. Everything is under his control and his plans cannot be derailed. Please, I appeal to you, don't leave your life to chance. If you've never trusted in God, put your trust in God. Maybe the world doesn't make much sense to you right now. Maybe it seems pretty hopeless. Well, church, the only way to have hope in a world that doesn't make sense is to trust in the one who is in control of it all. The secret to understanding the coincidences of Esther chapter 6 is to realize that there are no coincidences, that God is always at work. And we're going to see this played out in our next point, the great reversal. God will reverse the fortunes of his people. Now, you see, some scholars think that Mordecai is the author of the book of Esther, and I tend to, to agree because of the way uh, Haman is portrayed, right? Uh, he's kind of like a cartoon villain. Um, what's the guy from the Wacky Races? He's kind of like that guy, right? He's a cartoon villain. He overplays his hand. He's too confident of his own genius, and ultimately it leads to his downfall. But up to this point in the story, things have been going Haman's way. You see, his ancestors are the ancient enemies of God's people, and now it seems that he's going to be able to wipe them off the face of the planet completely. And as a bonus, he's got his evil genius plan to take out Mordecai, who he despises above all the other Jews. Like you can almost hear him, like his evil genius laugh as he's like walking up to the palace that day, rubbing his hands together. But for all his excitement... He's not about to just rush into the king's, uh, you know, uh, private quarters. 
Even as the second most powerful man in the, in the empire, he knows that that's a good way to get your head chopped off. So he waits for the king to call him in. And you can imagine him pacing back and forth. Yes, he's smiling. He knows that his moment of victory is so close. He's got, had the gallows built to, to end per Mordecai's life. All these kinds of things. And then it goes even better than he could have imagined. When the king lets him in, he says, Haman, what should be done to the man that the king delights to honor? What should we do for this? And Haman can hardly believe his ears. This is going so well. Yes, he's just had a private dinner with the king and the queen last night, a banquet just for three. And now the king wants to honor him. I mean, who else could the king be talking about, right? Who else? He's almost like a kid. You know, you know when, when kids, my kids have already started doing this. They rehearse what they're going to say when Father Christmas asks them what they want for Christmas. Like my kids are already like picking stuff out and, 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 and Haman's answer just rolls off his tongue. Like he's a, you know, he's a kind of guy that's been rehearsing this in the mirror a few times. He knows exactly what to say. He's got this bullet in the chamber and as soon as the, the king asks the question, he is ready to go. I want a robe. I want the royal robes. I want the royal horse and I want a parade. This reveals the pride in Haman's heart. He, he, what he values over land and money and power is, is possession and recognition above other people. Now, this is a big moment. He's finally going to get to what he deserves. Finally, all his scheming and planning and hard work is going to pay off, and he's going to get the recognition he deserves. Or so he thinks. Because Haman's plans were about to run headlong into the providence of God. God is in control. You see, Haman wanted to be honored by all, but in the end, he was put to shame. Why? Because God was about to reverse the fortunes of his people. This is the, the pivot moment of the entire book. In verse 10 of, of chapter 6, you see, the king commands that everything Haman has just said he should go and do to Mordecai who he despises without leaving out any detail. And so Haman takes the king's robes, dresses Mordecai. Can you imagine his shame and disgust at having to do this? He puts him on the king's horse and he parades him around the city square uh, shouting, look what happens to the man that the king delights to honor. Now it's hard to grasp just how extreme this reversal is. Haman whose entire life seems to be bent on destroying Mordecai and God's people, has to parade Mordecai around the city streets on the king's horse, wearing the king's robes, declaring to everyone that the king honors this man. This is the great reversal. This is what God does for his people. Listen, church, regardless of how uh, detailed and bulletproof Haman's uh, schemes seem to be, God's will to honor his people will never be overcome. Regardless of how desperate things seemed, God was not about to abandon his people. No matter how dark it seemed for God's people in this moment, God was about to reverse their fortunes, and he begins with Mordecai. You see, instead of wearing sackcloth and ashes, Mordecai is now dressed in royal robes. Instead of crying throughout the city in mourning, he is led through the city, and Haman is crying out for all to honor him. This is what God does for his people. See, God's, God's will to save his people cannot be derailed. And nothing, nothing can stop the salva salvation plans of God for his people. Nothing. We need to put ourselves in the position of the Jews here in the book of Esther. Because of our sin and rebellion, 
instead of living in, in paradise in the Garden of Eden, we, we are living in a state of exile. We are living in a world surrounded by, by evil. A death sentence has been pronounced upon us. We have nothing to expect except death. But then God intervenes. You see, when all hope seemed lost, when the, when the world seemed to be at its darkest, when, when God appeared to be at his most silent, he worked in the most unlikely event, the birth of a wee baby boy. The fortunes of the people God's loved were, were, were beginning to be reversed. And in the great pivot point of history, just like we see in, in Esther chapter 6, in this great pivot point of history, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our destiny has been reversed from death to eternal life. Through Jesus, our death has been replaced with life. Our rags have been replaced with royal robes. Our shame has been replaced with honor. Our, de our defeat has been replaced with victory. This is what God does for his people, for all who believe in him. And I love that. I love that over and over again in this passage, we see these words, whom the king delights to honor. Well, who does the king of kings delight to honor? He delights to honor his children. We can't afford to miss that, that God has worked all the events of human history together for our good. Every single step of history has been working out his salvation plans. In the very beginning, God promised to send the one who would crush the serpent and destroy evil forever. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, all the events of God's working, uh, working out his salvation plans came to their culmination. The serpent crusher has come. You see, our fortunes have been reversed because death has been defeated. The proclamation that the death sentence on us has been removed when we believe in Jesus. And salvation is available for all who believe in him. And just the same way that God used this young queen, God used a, a king's sleepless nights, the same God that used a bedtime story, the same God is working all things together for the salvation of his people. And, and listen, I'll just take a little drink. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've come with a friend or, you know, you're, you've come with a family member just to check it out or, you know, so they'll stop nagging you or something. If you're not a Christian, you're here this morning. You're not here by chance. You're here because God is working in your life to bring you to salvation through Jesus. And I appeal to you to trust in him today. And if you are a Christian, my brothers and sisters, you are in whatever situation you are in because God has you exactly where he needs you. So whatever job you have, whatever neighborhood you live in, whatever school your kids go to or you go to, whatever sports club you're a part of, you're there for his glory, for your joy and the advancement of his kingdom. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and nothing can stop that. And whatever you may be suffering right now, whatever hardship or illness or injustice you are facing right now, you're there for his glory, your benefit, and the advancement of his kingdom. And trust me, God does not abandon his people. You see, in Esther, all hope seemed lost for God's people. And maybe you feel like all hope is lost for you. You don't know how to get out of the hole that you're in. 
But God had not abandoned his people in Esther, and he never will abandon you. He reversed their fortunes, and God has reversed the fortunes of all his people through the the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one day when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom forever, in that day, all our suffering and trials and pain and worry will finally be over. So brothers and sisters, let's not doubt. Let's have faith. If God worked all the events of history together to bring you to salvation, surely he will not abandon you now. And this brings me on to my final point this morning. The preservation. The preservation. The world will not overcome God's people. Maybe we need to think on that for a second. The world will not overcome God's people. It doesn't feel like that sometimes, right? It feels like the world is overcoming us. Doesn't it? A lot. Listen to verse 13 of Esther chapter 6. Haman has uh, had his moment of shame and he's had the parade Mordecai around and then he goes back to his wife and now he's the one who has his head covered and he's in mourning and he goes back to Zeresh, his wife, and, and all his friends. And this is what happens. He says, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is incredible. I don't know if Zeresh and and Haman's friends knew exactly what they were saying, but what they're saying with great insight and prophetic wisdom is that if, if Mordecai is one of God's people, there is no way you can ever overcome him. The world will not and cannot prevail over God's people. And you think about what was going on here in this city of Susa. God had made a promise to, to honor his people, to be with his people. On Mount Sinai, hundreds of years before, uh, when the people of Israel left slavery in Egypt, God made a covenant with his people to be their God and, and, and they would be his people. And God cannot break his covenants. And so regardless of how this situation in in Susa, in Esther, appears, God is ruling all of history according to the promises He has made to His people. You see, it was their sin and their unfaithfulness that had led the Israelites to be in this city in exile. But God still remembers His promises to them. And please hear me, church. In Jesus, God has made a new covenant with His people. When we, when we come to take the communion meal in a few minutes, we're going to remember this. That on the night before he died, Jesus took the, the cup of wine. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And we have a new covenant sealed, not with the blood of sacrificed animals, but with the blood of the Son of God himself. A covenant to never leave us or forsake us. A covenant that all the spiritual blessings of Christ are now ours. A covenant that he is our God and we are his people. A covenant to keep us to the end. And nothing, and I mean nothing, can ever change or break or bend or distort God's promise to his people. You want to know something God can't do? He can't break his promises. A friend of mine 
is a songwriter, and he wrote one song, uh, he wrote, he's written lots of songs. There's one line in one of his songs, that he, and it just keeps coming back to me. It says, he will not abandon those he has ransomed. Isn't that good? My best friend is a graphic designer, and uh, he had a studio in the city center in Belfast in the Arts District, and in the earlier hours of last Monday, um, someone climbed up on the roof and set the place on fire. Uh, and the place was burnt to an empty shell. And it was, quite, it was quite a big deal for our city because it's a historic building. The building's over 200 years old, and it, it, was, it was completely burnt down. And my friend was rightly completely distraught. And he wasn't the only artist who worked in that building. It was a, a creative industries hub, uh, and it's now completely gone. People have lost their livelihoods. People have lost uh, money. People have lost so much. And when I met with him to pray and comfort him, you know what he said? He said that of all the artists who who have lost everything, he's the lucky one because he knows Jesus. And even though his entire livelihood is destroyed, nothing can separate him from the love of God. That's what he said. Incredible faith. And if you are in Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 8. If, if you've been a Christian a while around church, you may be familiar with them. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And maybe you feel tribulation this morning. Maybe you feel like you're just a sheep being led to be slaughtered. Maybe, maybe you do have those bills that are mounting up. Maybe you do have that unfavorable diagnosis. Maybe you're crippled with anxiety and depression and you think, what's the point? If you are in Jesus, listen to this. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. If you are in Jesus, nothing can separate you from His love, and He will preserve you to the end. Whatever the world throws at you, it will not overcome you. In cancer and depression and in illness and anxiety, the world will not overcome. In financial problems, in pandemics and in wars, the world will not overcome. In family problems, in in, in relationship breakdowns, in divorce and hurt and betrayal and pain, the world will not overcome. Haman's wife was right. You see, as long as the world conspires against God's people, they, they won't overcome. They're they're already on the losing side. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. He says this himself. John chapter 16, verse 33 says, I say these things to you that in me you may have peace. Okay, I'm saying to you right now, church, this morning, Jesus wants you to have peace. He wants you to have peace. So listen to this. In the world, you will have tribulation. Well, thanks, Jesus. That's not exactly giving me peace. I'm going to have tribulation. But listen to this. Listen to this. Hear Jesus say these words to us this morning. Take heart. But take heart. I have overcome the world. 
And this isn't hyperbole. It's not wishful thinking. It's not metaphor. It's the truth for all of us here in Jesus. Yes, in this world, we will have tribulation. Yes, we will. Loved ones, loved ones die. But this is the truth. We will face persecution and tribulation, but the world will not overcome us because we are in Jesus. And Jesus has overcome the world. Amen? Amen. You see, when Jesus, and I'm nearly done, when Jesus lay dead in that tomb, and make no mistake, he was dead. When Jesus lay dead in that tomb, there's never been a, a, a darker moment in all of human history. Hope seemed lost, right? It was dark. But did Jesus stay dead? Did Jesus stay dead? And when breath entered his lungs and, and, and life entered his body and he walked out of that tomb, he proved that he had overcome the very worst that sin and hell could throw at him. And now, if we are in Jesus, we share in that victory also. So if you are Jesus, if you are in Jesus, then you are on the right side of history. And anyone who conspires against you, anything the world throws at you, they've already lost. Jesus has already won. And doesn't this give us such confidence and hope? No matter how dark the night gets, no matter how desperate your situation may seem, there is a morning coming. I was talking about this with a friend just the other night. There is a morning coming, a morning that will be clear and bright. A day will dawn uh, with joy and peace everlasting. And in that day, all the opponents, all the enemies of God will bow before him. And we will reign and rule with King Jesus forever. So church, I urge you this morning, take heart. Whatever, whatever you're going through, in Jesus, that tribulation will one day, maybe not in this life, but it will one day be taken away and it will be replaced with comfort and joy and peace and satisfaction forever and ever with Jesus. You see, God is working through all things for the good of his people. There are no chances because he is in control. He has reversed the fortunes of his people through the death and resurrection of his son, and he will preserve us to the very end. What he has started in you, what he's begun in you, he will complete in you. That's the promise of God. Can I invite you just to take a few seconds right now in the silence just to, to trust him? Maybe you need to trust him again. Maybe you need to entrust to him whatever tribulation you are facing right now. Maybe it's been a while since you've trusted him. Maybe you've never trusted him. My invitation to us all right now is just to, to trust in Jesus because he has overcome the world. Let's maybe just take a few seconds and then I'll close in prayer. Come Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your eternal word that fills us with such truth that leads to such hope. Father, I pray for all my dear brothers and sisters here this morning. Whatever tribulation, whatever hardship, whatever it is they have faced, are currently facing, or will face, Father, I pray that they would endure because they put their trust in you 
Jesus, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome the world. And so we have nothing to fear. We cannot be defeated because we are on your side. We are on the winning side. And for anyone listening right now who, who doesn't know you yet, Father, I pray that you would work powerfully through your spirit right now to call them to yourself, to put trust in the one who is in control of a world that doesn't seem to make sense. Lord, we love you. And we pray these things for your glory, for our joy, for the advancement of the kingdom and the defeat of our enemy. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.